In this episode, we meet Chuck Blake and Bob Wessels, pioneers in fuel economy testing. I'm Jim Park, and this is HGT Talks Trucking. This is episode four of season five, and it's sponsored by Heavy Duty Trucking Exchange. Find out about HGTX at heavydutytruckingexchange.com. It wasn't long after I joined the Trucking Press Corps back in 1998 and attended my first few meetings of the ATA's Technology and Maintenance Council that I learned the spirits of competition and cooperation live comfortably together in this industry. For that reason, I became fascinated with the relationship between Caterpillar's Bob Wessels and Detroit Diesel's Chuck Blake. While they worked for competitive companies, they worked tirelessly together to develop the fuel economy and testing validation procedures for TMC, eventually producing the TMC SAE Type 2 fuel test, otherwise known as RP1102, and called in-service fuel consumption test procedure. Over the years, I sat through a lot of TMC task force and study group sessions where Bob and Chuck presented the results of their work, all the while poking fun at one another. To me, these two fellows were the faces of their respective companies, yet they were always supportive of each other and dedicated to a common goal that was in everybody's best interest. This podcast episode is as much a thank you for the work they did as it is a tribute to that spirit of cooperation. We'll meet Bob Wessels and Chuck Blake right after this. Heavy Duty Trucking Exchange is a unique networking event where fleet managers and suppliers connect and collaborate. HDTX 2021 takes place in Scottsdale, Arizona. Due to the ongoing pandemic, we can't yet commit to a date, so visit heavydutytruckingexchange.com to check for updates and to learn more about the event. We've got a couple of really interesting guests uh, on this episode. We've got uh, Bob Wessels, uh, formerly the... uh, assistant chief engineer and a project manager at Caterpillar. He retired in 2006. And we've got Chuck Blake. He's uh, retired from Detroit Diesel in 2018. When he left, he was the senior technical support manager at Detroit Diesel. Uh, These two guys are well-recognized and well-known around the halls of TMC and out in the fuel economy trails. Gentlemen, it's great to talk to you. Welcome to HDT Talks Trucking. Thanks, Jim. Almost Happy New Year. Almost Happy New Year to you. Thank you, Jim. Thanks for joining us here this morning. It is almost New Year's. It's uh, December 31st, 2020. Uh, We're just wrapping things up here for the craziest year we've had in a long time. How have you made out in 2020? Let's uh, let's start with you, Bob. How's this year been for you? No, it's the same old sixes and sevens. It's not really, if you live in the middle of nowhere, nothing much ever happens. So that's where I live. And so nothing much ever happens. So life really hasn't turned itself upside down for you? No, it's the same old stuff. Build houses and go on. Okay. And what about you, Chuck? How's 2020 been for you so far? I'd say quite excellent, actually. Um, You know, we're living in the northwest corner of lower Michigan. So my boat's six miles away, and I can always jump on that. Um, Been doing a lot of biking in the woods, um, summer and winter. And, uh, so life's good. I'm happy. We got a bunch of vineyards, uh, in this area of Michigan and, uh, it's always a celebration. So what have you both been doing then since you retired? Um, I know you were pretty busy in the day. Uh, some folks don't take well to retirement. How have you guys made up? Bob, start with you. No, I do find that we've been, uh, we've been developing property for the last 10 or 12 years and it, keeps you busy and we don't do big projects small small parcel small parcels typically houses and if we can find a lot on the lake a lake house and that's what we do you were telling me uh on a phone conversation we had a couple of days ago uh that you've got a rather unique rv uh, <laughs> spending some time in that thing can you tell me about that well uh, it's 20 years old now the rv's 20 years old the truck's a 90s six Peterbilt. We built the RV in 2000 out of a used truck that used to belong to uh, a trucking company in Morton, Illinois, took a tractor and stretched it, made it look like a a school bus chassis and had a motorhome built on it by one of those folks that don't do that anymore. There used to be several of them in Elkhart. I think there's only one left actually now, but that'll do a used truck. 
there are a lot of people do new trucks, but very few people would mess with used trucks. Mm-hmm. But anyway, and- it's a, it's quite a, it's quite a, we enjoy it. It's, it's just a big old ugly monster. Chuck spent one night in it back many years ago. Yeah, we, we actually had to rescue it. Bob forgot to pay his dues, his rent at the uh, campsite he was at. And we, we were doing a, uh, a fuel economy test actually with a, an 07 and a, and a 2010. And uh, we were looking at, you know, cost and how to actually do a type four fuel economy with those types of emission standards on them. And we had a, we had to make a quick run from Chicago all the way down to rescue it. But uh, by the time we got there, it was late, and Bob let me sleep in there instead of going hunting, finding an apartment. <laughs> so that was good. <laughs> uh, so just for the record, uh, Bob, what kind of engines in that truck? It's a C10 Caterpillar from the Dark Ages. It's a ninety. Actually, it's a it's a ninety six model C10 fire truck rating. Wonderful okay. engine. And what kind of fuel economy do you get with it? Well, the the motor home the motor home pulling the car, I do normally somewhere but somewhere around ten, ten and a half. Uh without the car I can do twelve or fourteen. Yeah, that's respectable. Well, it's, it's sort of an it's an it's not geared right. It's just a it's just an old truck. It's got three ninety rear ends and very unusual tires, 1200, 22.5 tires. Like the only place you'll ever find these tires is normally on the steering axle of a Greyhound bus. I was going to say that. But, it's a motor coach tire. Yeah, it is. And it's, but it's an easy, it's cheaper than buying rear axle ratios to get, you can get one rear end ratio by putting those tires on as opposed to the 22.5s that are, we're normally on it. And it, it does okay because the little engine's only 10 liters. You can run at 1,600 RPM at 70 miles an hour and still get 10 miles to the gallon. So, mm-hmm. Cool. I'm happy. Good. Yeah. What about you, Chuck? Did you? Oh, sorry. I got a question for Bob. Did, did you ever take any Jim Booth driving lessons to help improve fuel economy? Absolutely. I use them all the time. Never, <laughs> never, use, never, use the, never use the cruise control, drive only with my foot. And uh, that way, that way, the uh, problem of having too much power at the top of the hill never exists. <laughs> so, so Bob's already got Bob's already programmed with a, with a, like adaptive cruise or, or understanding the terrain, right? Because he can see and then he can adjust. That's the, that's the, that's the difference between cruise and adaptive cruise. Is cruise has no eyes, and adaptive cruise sometimes thinks it does. You know, it utterly amazes me, you know, all the, all the engineering and all the time and money that's been spent by guys like you to make stuff like adaptive crews work. And yet, you know, for a good driver, it's utterly intuitive, but it, I've, I've watched the evolution of that technology over the last five to 10 years. And, uh, like I said, from a, a driver's point of view, it's intuitive, but yet they got to throw all this computing power to make it work. Kind of weird. Well, drivers get tired too. At, yeah, then that's a good point. Drivers get tired. They don't stay on the ball all day long, whereas this computer never gets tired. So what about you, Chuck? What have you been up to since uh, you hung up your, your driving hat? Well, almost no work at all. I, I keep in touch with a few guys that are looking for a little bit of help here and there, but uh, it's mostly uh, um, just playtime for me. I mean, I, you know, I'm volunteering at the, at the church and like an old guy, I play pickleball quite a bit in the summer. Everybody's doing that now. Yeah. Except me. But I, I, we're lucky. We, there's only four houses on our little uh, stub street here. And at the end of the, we're at the very end and we actually have a pickleball court in the cul-de-sac. So it's okay. <laughs> cool. You still got your CDL? I do. I gave up hazmat because I didn't want to pay for the fingerprinting and all that stupid stuff you got to do, you know. But uh, I still do, and, and matter of fact, when they harvest cherries up here, uh, there's always a demand for. Uh, basically, they take uh, like old school buses and cut the back of them off, and uh, so they can load them up with the cherry crates. And uh, but they, you know, when, once you start harvesting, it's it's twenty four seven, go 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 until it's done. So 
Yep. Uh, there's always a demand for, and I, I keep hearing uh, the truck driving school also, of course, looking for, uh, um, you know, if you want a good paying job, you know, um, come see us. We'll get you a CDL and, you know, get you going. You go in there and do uh, fuel economy sessions for uh, for the driver? <laughs> no, I'm, I'm just playing anymore. I'm just playing. Good for you. Yeah. Okay, well, speaking of playing, you guys going way, way back. Uh, I'll, I'll tell you first off, uh, the reason we're doing this uh, podcast, um, in my time at TMC, I think I started going to TMC in 97 or 98 and haven't missed too many years since then. Uh, but whenever Bob and Chuck were on the agenda, uh, I made sure I attended those sessions. I found them obviously really informative, uh, but also really entertaining. You guys obviously being competitors, Detroit Diesel and Caterpillar, you had to keep some professional distance, but it was pretty obvious that there was a friendship there as well, some kind of uh, relationship that you guys had established over the years. Can we go back to those early days and uh, tell me how you met and, and how you got involved in, in all that fuel economy testing and stuff you did? Bob, you want to start? Well, most of it was driven by validation of the test procedures, as I recall. I I think that's where it really started, uh, and that was uh, that was actually a job I had from Caterpillar to be involved in validation of the. I guess it started with the Type Two because Type One was a joke. Test procedures and been doing it ever since, and I, I'm sure that's where I first ran into ran into Chuck, and then from the from the validation procedures, we got off into making uh, presentations at the maintenance council. And that's, that's really how it evolved, at least in my memory. What do you remember, Chuck? Yeah, we were, um, I mean, I can give you a little background from my point of view. Of course, you know, the end of the seventies, we were at, at Detroit Diesel, we were trying to, you know, move into the 6V92 TT, right? Tailored torque from the 8V71, naturally aspirated. And then in the end of the 80s, of course, you're trying to move into the Series 60. So that whole validation thing, whether it was competitive within a fleet um, or it was, you know, trying trying to look at, at your own house and say, okay, yes, this is actually better, but we need real deal, um, you know, methods to test and, and document you know, what's, what's going on. But um, yeah, Bob and I did a lot of task force meetings together and I, I think we always had a pretty good time. We were always jabbing each other. Um, but I think we, we both really wanted to know what, what the truth was, you know, and, and, you know, we wanted better methods, you know, to understand, um, you know, to wipe out the variables or look at the variables and see what, you know, what's a good number, what's a bad number. And um, <laughs> I, I remember one, one story, Bob, right. We're coming back, uh, we're doing the Maverick Maverick test, and, and we were running this um, this 07 against this 010, and for some reason the 10 should have been a, a couple percent better, but it was almost like within a half a percent. And Bob was keeping track of the numbers, and Bob flipped the numbers around on a couple of the fuel stops, even though the numbers worked because yeah. the ratio was so close to each other. But Bob was always kicking himself for that. He's like, "Dang it, you know, we should have <laughs> we should have had a better result here instead of a, a, a you know 1.1 percent for." you know, six different fuel stops running, uh, you know, 1,100 miles each way. We, we should have had it like within a half a percent of this, you know, repeatability. But uh, anyways. Half a yeah. percent's pretty precise. A lot of people believe that's pretty precise, but it's astounding how if you run, if you run those kind of distances, if you can get a thousand miles in a leg, the, the accuracy is, uh, you know, of a half a percent is really not as hard to attain as, most people who live in the world of uh, of twenty thousand dollar meters and all sorts of other exotic equipment simply don't believe you can get those kind of numbers and get that kind of repeatability. But actually, it's not really that hard to do. It just takes lots of miles and lots of time. Lots of miles mm -hmm. being a, being a thousand miles. I mean, you know, not everybody can run a thousand miles, but. If you can Siamese it on the back of hauling real freight down the road, it's really not that expensive a proposition. And you can get extremely high-quality answers from from relatively low-tech equipment. There's some, you know, there's tricks that you have to, there, there are 
processes. They're not really tricks. They're processes and technical details that you have to adhere to. But uh, it's it's really not that bad. Stay away from square tanks and unlevel fuel islands, and you'll do pretty good. Well, you guys kind of wrote the book on this, didn't you? It was uh, you and others, Rosie Rosenthal and a few other people, uh, Bill Stahl, I think, from Cummins or Kevin Otto. Uh, you were back there in the early days setting up these procedures and figuring out how to uh, how to do these tests and get them repeatable. I remember being in that meeting in Detroit where Rosie and I were actually just jumbling around with the numbers when the type one was making no sense at all. And we stumbled upon this ratio method for figuring out whether runs were good or not. And that remains really the heart of those procedures. And it was, uh, it was just by happenstance looking at a bunch of numbers and saying, there's got to be some way to make sense out of this. And the, and the ratio method or the ratio of what one truck burns to another truck was then and remains now really the heart of those procedures. That, and one of the things, those, one of those details that you got to get right or you won't get the right answers. And you did have some statisticians working with you, right, Bob? I don't remember them. Yeah. <laughs> okay. <laughs> they, but, but, but by the way, the statistician said that this was a, this was a cheap Charlie shortcut that could not be done in a world of statisticians because it was not statistically relevant. But eventually, if you run enough of those, if you run enough of those points enough times, the force, the weight of the repeatability of the answers becomes the statistical relevance. But when they first looked at it, they said, Hockham Bucky can't work. Well, and I guess for fleets, doing their own real world sort of testing when they, you know, want to evaluate a technology, they can't afford all those expensive meters and, and uh, all that other stuff. They need to rely on repeatability and you just, you know, pure numbers, one stacking one in on top of the other to see a result. And there, you know, if you, if you're going to use these procedures, there are a couple of things you got to understand for, for example, you have to understand the temperature correction information the the way that yep. works and being able to because the fuel in the tank heats up with a typical unit injected engine some of some of the new engines it doesn't heat up near as much as it used to but at any rate it changes in fact it'll change enough i was running a test the first time i ever ran into that and became totally convinced i was running a test out of salt lake city going west across bonneville and it made a difference as to which direction the truck ran because of the sun impinging on the fuel tanks. And wow. I, I said, wow, you gotta be <laughs> kidding me. But if you, if you did the temperature corrections correctly, everything was perfect. If you ignored the temperature corrections, you had a bunch of jambalaya that you couldn't make any sense out of at all. That's picking fly poop out of pepper. <laughs> yeah, but it's really, it's really a, it's really a pretty significant number. I mean, you know, it's, as I recall, it amounted to a, a volumetric change in a hundred gallons of something like uh, something like four tenths of a gallon. Well, four tenths of a gallon, if you're trying to run a hundred miles, is a big deal. Mm-hmm. Indeed. But it's easy to get it out if you and and I think Chuck was the original daddy of the fuel must touch the fuel neck in the fuel tank, and that's another one of the. When you're adding the fuel, you must have the fuel just touch the fuel neck so that the so that the uh, the tension adheres the fuel to the fuel neck, and that number yeah yeah it's so repeatable it's unbelievable. So in this hard, in this corn pone sort of off the wall way of doing things, there really some there really some methodology that is uh, really important that you have to do repeatedly. And you have to understand what you're doing. And I made a crack earlier. Anybody that tries to run these fuel tests like we run with the square fuel tanks is out of their mind. I don't believe it can be done. So because of the the volumetric changes with just tiny little angles on the mm-hmm. fuel tank are so important as opposed to round ones where you have the fuel just touch the fuel neck or very repeatable, and if the two trucks are in the same place, 
the difference between the first time you stop and the second time you stop sort of gets taken out in the wash. And if you don't understand that, you can make some pretty sort of significant mistakes that'll give you answers that just literally don't make any sense. But uh, just just for interest's sake, back in those days, seventies, eighties. What sort of fuel economy were you seeing? You know, what were the trucks uh, were trucks doing on a good day? Well, uh, you know, we don't really keep up with the miles per gallon, so they can sort of get lost. But typically, I would say they were in the fives, five sevens, would be a not unusual number. Right. What do you think now when we're seeing trucks that are not quite routinely yet, but uh, fairly commonly pushing ten and even eleven in some cases? I think those are the exceptions, not the rules. I, I don't, I don't see. I still don't see fleets with a hundred trucks pulling that for an average for the hundred trucks. No. But I think the average but, is probably closer to eight. Yeah. Now so you can touch that. That's right. Yeah. So there are big, big, big changes. Some of the stuff never changes, though. Yeah. I, sometimes you're wrong. You know, thirty years ago, I predicted that the two or three percent that's tied up in rearview mirrors, somebody would fix. And ain't nobody fixed it yet. Oh, well, they've, they've got cameras now that are replacing mirrors that they say are... That's the, only in... way, that's the only way to get rid of it. That was the only way to get rid of it then. But yeah. they, uh, the, the, the acceptance of cameras to get rid, to get 2% in fuel consumption is, uh, is uh, you know, but it's, it's amazing what you can what you stumble on. I remember the day like yesterday that I stumbled on that a non vent advisor on a cab over Freightliner was worth three quarters of one percent. I I literally couldn't believe it, but it's worth three quarters of one percent. If you got a, hmm. a sun visor on an old square box Freightliner that doesn't have vents in it, that doesn't let the air out of the back of the sun visor. Yep. It'll cost you three quarters of one percent to haul it down the road. Any observations of uh, from you, Chuck, of of stuff that surprised or shocked you, or you were, you know, found really interesting back in the day? No, I actually I remember one story from uh, from uh, Brother Bob. They're talking about uh, power steering and uh, how his you know power steering was driving him crazy. He couldn't get the results in the the way the road was and the driver was always fighting the steering box and it was messing up the results. Basically. Right. right, Bob? And I still think there was something wrong with that truck, but there, that is a true story. <laughs> well, yeah, it makes some, sense. Something, it, had to, it had to be something that was calling for a lot of power out of the power. Well, not a lot. You know, the air conditioning system will eat you alive, but the there was something drawing power out of that truck's power steering system that I don't believe that was normal. But by disconnecting the power steering, you could get the repeatability that couldn't that this didn't exist with the power steering connected. So something was screwball. Of course, ruts, ruts. Most people don't realize how bad the roads are rutted if they're asphalt. But ruts and asphalt roads are also issues as far as your repeatability. And ruts and asphalt roads are also issues for drivers. You get you got ruts and asphalt roads. You got to be really careful about how the drivers you have approach the ruts because those that those that go dead straight burn more fuel than those that wander around. And most people don't believe that either, but that's the way it is. Mister Booth is the guy that proved that to me. Well, when you sit down and think about it, it makes some sense because the truck's wandering and it's you know the edge of the tires are pushing up against the ruts, and you're you know digging into the power steering a little bit to help overcome that. So every time you tap the power steering, you're drawing some power off the powertrain. It's got to hurt. That's right. Bob was talking about mirrors, and I can remember doing one fuel economy run for a certain OE, and it was basically just single truck, just running. And uh, we were we were being very, very fuel-efficient driving-wise, kind of like, you know, the plum on the, uh, on the, on the throttle pedal. But we, we were hitting nine eight nine 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 eight nine nine, and we had this big six-inch convex mirror sitting out there. We thought, let's pull that stupid thing off. And sure enough, and I don't know how accurate the meter was, but the, basically the meter ended up giving us a, a 10 MPG at that time, but it was a change and improvement in the right direction. But just that great big old thing out there just messing the air up. Uh, 
obviously was doing something wrong. Hard to imagine something relatively small like that uh, can make that big of a difference when you talk about the frontal profile of a typical tractor trailer. You know, that doesn't seem doesn't seem like a lot. It's not a lot, but it's it's but it disturbs the airflow. And once you get turbulence going, the turbulence is what really causes the big losses that you can't understand or see. But yeah. you can get fooled going the other way. I messed around with a pair of Peterbilts that had that had a huge external air cleaners on them. I messed around with uh-huh. those things for the better part of three weeks before I realized that actually taking the big external air cleaners off of the hood hurt the fuel consumption. I don't know. I don't know how. I mean, you know, this is the days of of no aerodynamics and no, God knows what's going on between the tractor and the trailer. But when you yep. took the big pots off of these two trucks, the fuel consumption actually got worse. And I, well, I the classic you know, guys are going to love that. Yeah, well, it, it it ain't true. I mean, it's one of those it's one of those anomalies of aerodynamics that happened once with a pair of trucks. And I know it happened with that pair of trucks, but is it a general statement? I would very seriously doubt it. I would but too. Anyway, you can you can really get. You can really get fooled. It's like the first time I, I never, I didn't ever bet very much because I knew what I was doing and I didn't, I thought I had an unfair advantage, but I had this guy that wouldn't leave me alone about viscous fan drives. And so I bet him a hundred dollars that they were worth at least four and a half percent in fuel consumption on a, on a truck that was doing about six and a half or six, seven or something like that. And they were worth four and a half percent in fuel consumption versus a, a classic on off. Mm-hmm. And Jeez. so you, it's uh, it's easy to be. You can get snookered by things that, you know, because that guy had been believing that story about the viscous fan drives are as good as the own off. He's been believing that for three or four or five years, but wasn't true. <laughs> Interesting. And that used to that used to get me upset too, because you'd be running against a competitor, and maybe the competitor only had the viscous fan drive on and they would say, well, let's take the fan belts off for this fuel economy yeah. test, you know, because we don't want the fan cycle. It's like, wait, wait a minute. What, what are you doing? You know, there goes the real <laughs> yeah. world. You, yeah. You can't Jimmy the test like that. I took fans off to run when they had viscous fan drives too, Chuck, but you know why I took them off because of the lack of repeatability of those turkeys, the, the fan drive when it cycled would get half off and run half off for a hundred miles. And then all of a sudden it had come on real hard and then it would go off and it'd actually be more off. And that would just, that would just terrorize your numbers. So I, I like to get the fans, the viscous fan drives out of the equations just to get repeatability, but you're absolutely correct about if, if that's the only option you got the truck, the truck you have is the truck you have, not the truck you wish you had. Well, and then we, you know, the cooling guys got really smart and they got into this lead lag logic, yep. right? Where you would wait until the very last minute to, to turn the fan on. You Maybe you didn't need it, depending on the, the rise, the temperature rise, how quick it was. If it was, if the temperature was going up real slow, don't worry about the fan. Let, let the engine get the 205. Who cares, yep. right? Um, but if, it, if, the, if the temperature was going up really fast, let's, let's turn the fan on early to handle this, you know, surge. Well, the difference between real world operation where you're going to have fans coming on unpredictably and, you know, an engineering test where you're trying to take out as many variables as possible. How does that translate to real world? Yeah. You know, like you can disconnect the fans and take the mirrors off and do all this stuff. Are you just sort of proving a theory at that point? Are you providing the fleets with uh, information they can take to the bank? Well, you raise a good point. You can you can fall off into misleading the unknowing on purpose. Can be done, but and the truth is that if you get enough miles, it's like when we run these these Maverick trucks from uh, Arkansas to Chicago and back. You know, we we don't worry about the fan drives being on or off because in truth, it'll come out in the wash. They don't. Mm-hmm. If, you, if you get enough miles under the under the and the legs, that, that kind of stuff, unless you've got some sort of problem, that kind of stuff is not really a problem. If you have a repeat, if you have a problem that's always there, 
it's like the first time that I ever was over in Indiana, the first time I ever ran into a set of of recaps that had perfect XDA tread on them, Michelin tread on them. I, did, I didn't know such things existed. And I just graded tires by eyeballs saying, no, those are XDAs, they're fine. <clears throat> and so this, this, this truck, this one truck just would not be where it was, should be. It was about, it was about 3% out in the weeds from where it ought to be. And that kept going on. And I was so hard headed that I did that for the better part of 10 days. Then one day it started raining and that truck came rolling in for us to take. This was in the days of changing fuel tanks, weigh tanks. This truck came in for us to take the weigh tanks off and the blooming tires were steaming. I said, Oh my, cause that was a, that's a dead giveaway. You got recaps. Mm-hmm. So I'd been running recaps against Virgin tires there for 10 days and didn't know it. So if you, if you let something like that sneak into your answer and you don't know it's there, you can get some results you don't like or want and are yep. really not representative. Just a reminder, we're talking with retired uh, fuel economy engineers, Chuck Blake, formerly of Detroit Diesel, and Bob Wessels, formerly of Caterpillar. Uh, we're going to take a short pause here. We're going to come back after the break with more from Chuck and Bob. Hang in there. HDT Talks Trucking is brought to you by Heavy Duty Trucking Exchange, a relationship-building event hosted by Heavy Duty Trucking Magazine. HDTX is loaded with topical discussions and learning opportunities with some of the most innovative people in the business. Managers of Class 7 and 8 fleets apply now to be our guests at HDTX 2021 in Scottsdale, Arizona. To learn more and to apply, go to heavydutytruckingexchange.com. Okay, we're back with Bob and Chuck. This is the Bob and Chuck podcast on HDT Talks Trucking. I'm Jim Park. Thanks for joining us again. Chuck, tell me about the uh, double nickel fuel challenge. Okay, that was kind of interesting. Yeah, we, uh, I can't remember who all organized it, but we we invited a bunch of people out to the test track in Ohio, a bunch of owner operators and said, uh, here's what we want to do, guys and girls. Uh, we want to run you at... Uh, 55 and then we want to run you at 65 uh, and of course we were you know installing tanks and everything back then those days um and of course those drivers were uh, very very smart right bob they uh they might uh run the track on their 55 mile an hour run with the uh, air conditioning on unbeknownst to the observer which was in each truck and maybe they were running uh, uh one gear down in their 13 speed and then when they ran 65, of course, they turned the air conditioning off um, or they'd, and they'd, they'd gear up a little bit, get the RPM back down. And, and maybe even some of them would, uh, would uh, just kind of lean on maybe the uh, trailer brake a little bit <laughs> when they were doing the 55. But they, there was actually a couple of them that uh, um, they beat us and we kind of knew it, but, you know, hard to prove. Right, Bob? Yeah, well, one of them wasn't that hard to prove when there was the, the guy, the owner operator from Indiana with the great big spread axle flat, who, when he was uh, going around the track, was raising and lowering the spread axle and tapping on the brakes to stop the wheels from spinning and then putting them back down on the pavement and spinning them back up. If you could see that, of course, you couldn't see it from where we were, but if you'd seen that, you would have known what he was doing. And that was, there was a guy there who was absolutely anti 55 miles an hour from one of the doesn't exist magazines anymore that was specialized in owner operators. And after it was over and this guy actually got better fuel consumption at 65 than he got at 55, this guy ran up and sticks a microphone in his face and says, well, what do you think about this test? And the, the old guy from Indiana says, pretty honest test. <laughs> <laughs> so they were just trying to game the test to prove that 55 was better than or 65 was better than 55 absolutely there were two or three of them that were in that mode and but the, the, yep. uh, the old guy the old guy with the flatbed from indiana was the one that really had the he had the way to make it be true uh, he, and he was a you know he was one of he was one of those guys that i talked to him for a long time he put uh four kids through college 
with a 1969 Freightliner cab over. Jeez. Back in the day, you guys were you know, consummate professionals. You were both working hard to uh, produce good, solid results. But there must have been some kibitzing going on, uh, a little bit of uh, professional rivalry, uh, Detroit versus Caterpillar. Do uh, you guys ever game the tests or, you know, knock your your partners off, off stride, you know, playing little games on one another? I don't recall ever doing that. I had that done to me by other people. I had I was running back in the dark ages of type one, which should have never existed. I had some clowns actually adding fuel to trucks in the middle of the night up in Canada. But other than other than that, the results up. Yeah, that's the way to win. If you can if you can sneak five gallons of fuel in the truck in the middle of the night, it'll it will it will it will influence the results. Yeah, a little bit. How about then, you, Chuck? And then guys, guys would. Um, I can remember running competitive stuff like like with uh, like with Ryder. And and if you had, you know, if if the OE had their driver in the vehicle, um, I know there was some instances where they were, you know, just cranking into the rest area as hard as they could, and then using engine brakes, which is how we kind of discovered it. But you know, to slow the vehicle down. But you know. If you had that stopwatch in your hand and you knew exactly when you needed to be at that stopping, you know, place, um, you you could you could game it for sure. Oh yeah, the the old observer. That's why I, that's why I became death on observer tests. I, I I concluded somewhere in that period of that what Chuck's talking about of having people trying to time the end and go slow and then and then race up to the end and jab the brakes which actually is backwards for saving fuel but you can win the you can win the 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 daily test war doing that that's when i said let's get these damn observers out of these trucks tell the drivers what to do and have them do it because uh observers sitting there thinking all day is one of the worst things going for for uh if, if somebody and there are not many people that did that. But if somebody wants to mess with an answer, that's a great way to mess Indeed. with an answer. But on the other hand, you know, and, and Bob and I were both involved. Um, we ran some uh, some tests for uh, the, the UPS guys. And, and we, we were running out of Atlanta to Charlotte. And we had some fantastic drivers. Um, we did have to send a crew in between to, to change you know, to swap the trailers back and forth because they weren't get drivers weren't getting paid to do that. But between that test and then when we did the uh, the Maverick test running from uh, Arkansas to Chicago and back again, had some outstanding drivers and you could tell them what to do to stay in contact with each other. You know, if you want headlights on, if you want wipers on, whatever, whatever the deal was, you know, air conditioning. If if they follow the instructions, I mean, you just you just ended up with super data, just outstanding data with the repeatability that, that we yeah. wanted to see. You know, in, in way inside half a percent data, those two guys uh, at UPS who had been driving, what did they say, Charlie or uh, Chuck? Uh, they'd been driving Charlotte to Atlanta, both of them for twenty two years. Thank God they could have done their sleep. Yeah, and they they would leave at different times, um, you know, generally on their on their on their schedule. So obviously, when we were testing, we said, okay, you know, let's adjust the time schedule for the for these two, you know, sets of doubles to head out at the same time, you know, so they could get the same traffic, you know. But we went back and looked at some of their data when they were just driving, and their ability to turn Atlanta varied less than three or four minutes typically wow that's amazing it is and so their ability to run good data was amazing we had an interesting incident in one of those when they ran one run that was garbage the numbers were just garbage and when we got to the bottom of it we discovered that what was it a, a rug or something blew up off the road and got on the one guy's windshield and he I had think it was a big plastic bag yeah yeah, he had, anyway, he had to stop and get the windshield off or the piece of debris off. And then if he had just continued on running his normal pace, 
everything would have probably worked out okay. But he decided he had to catch up to get back where he was behind the other truck. So he ran like hell there for 20 miles to catch up. And that's why our uh, numbers went to hell in a handbasket. And but these guys, they were probably the most repeatable. I mean, for two drivers that just drive trucks down the road, they did the same thing every night. I mean, in fact, both of them sort of joked, you know, they, they said the little place they normally stopped to drink coffee down in South Carolina, that they parked the trucks within 10 feet of where they were every night. That's amazing. It is. And, and, but, but their, their ability to generate extremely high quality data from just driving trucks down the, down the interstate was, was really mind boggling. It was, it was some of the most repeatable, some of the best data I've ever seen run by mm-hmm. anybody, professional test drivers, you name it. I, these guys were just amazing. What was the, uh, the transition like uh, at the time between the, the manually fueled engines and the electronic controls that came out? Well, I think, you know, the electronic engine, you could, you could gear it up now, right? To run 70, but, but don't allow it to go any faster than, you know, 58 or 60 or whatever the fleet decided at. And of course, um, drivers had ways of figuring out how to mess up that uh, speed sensor (laughs) (laughs) or or they'd make their own speed sensor. Um, But I think the, the electronic stuff, and then with the ability to to change the timing, you know, because you had to meet the emission standards and mechanical engine, you were basically retarded almost all the time. And, and, and with an electronic engine, you could get out and you could stretch a little bit. So, um, I think the the gearing was 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 the big big deal. Was of course back then was when Chuck and I used to have these never ending arguments about what kind of governor strategies were correct before before electronic engines, and then when electronic engines came along, you could select you could you could take one from a speed controlling governor to a to a torque controlling governor by just changing the software. So that changed a lot of things too. I'm sure it did. Yeah. So we had, we Chuck, used to have these arguments about which was better. And did, was it ever resolved that argument? Well, most people, a speed controlling governor is the beginning of adaptive cruise control. It's the first step in that direction. So the basic speed controlling governor, there's an argument that says it's better. Now, there's an argument that says it's worse because it'll put on all the power the engine can make without you moving your foot. Mm-hmm. So you can you can make an argument that it goes both ways. But okay, it was kind of like it was it was easier to try to convince the driver that you didn't have to have your foot on the floor all day long, right? That's right. You know, you could you could kind of like three quarter it, and then even up the hill three quarter it. Don't don't go after it hundred percent. Just kind of let your momentum and. You know, if the hill's not too long, it'll it'll float over the top, anyways, right? Yeah, right. And, and a lot of the stuff that we talk about that the high technology's taken out of the driver equation. You know, there's so many things in the driver equation the high technology has not taken out. We talked about one of them. That's how the guy maneuvers the truck between the stripes is a is an issue that the governor doesn't. You know, the speed, you know, the electronic systems don't take out. And uh, the the application of the brakes is another thing that, even though they probably could take it out with the computers, they never have, because nobody wants to accept the product liability of letting the computer do that. Mm-hmm. And so, there, but there's a uh, there's there's so much that the driver controls. I mean, you know, just standard like we would take the example of these two guys that parked the truck in the same place. In the truck stop, you know, you you could waste five gallons. Of, I bet their drivers waste five gallons of fuel a day by the way they drive in circles around truck stops. It's one of the most ridiculous things I've ever seen. The way some people yeah, get yeah. into a truck truck stop and they just they they literally drive five miles before they find a parking place. It's crazy. And and those those are the drivers that probably needed that extra you know hundred steps to uh, stay in shape too, right? <laughs> Right. I, I got I got one other thing I got to I got to talk about. We were running some uh, fuel economy tests at uh, Frymiller, big big cat fleet, right? So we were trying to prove the Series 60 in there, 
and Jim Booth was uh, kind of assigned that. I don't know if Bob assigned him or what, but anyways, the the poor C12 had a few little uh, mechanical situations going on. So Jim Booth, somewhere halfway during the trip, Jim Booth um, ended up staying up all night working on this this uh, engine at the dealership, and they got it working and everything. And we took off, and uh, I don't know where we were running, but poor Jim was starting to fall asleep, and I happened to be riding in the truck with him. And it was the cat power truck, of course. And and I said, Jim, I said, you know, let me drive the thing for you, okay? And I had all the respect in the world for Jim because I learned a lot from from his uh, driving techniques. Um, but but anyways, I ended up, you know, Detroit Diesel guy ended up driving the Caterpillar truck, trying to beat the Detroit Diesel truck, you know, for the for the primary fuel economy run. But did your bosses know about that? I don't think so, but whatever. But they do now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Trucking buddies, right? So, so tell me, Chuck. Honestly, what did you think of the cat? Yeah, it was a good horse. Hey, I, you know, I didn't have any problem with it. I, it was, it was. You know, I can't remember if we were using cruise or not. Or not. I, I can't remember that. But um, if Booth, if Booth had anything to do with it, you weren't using the cruise because he hates them or hates yeah. them. <laughs> That's good. Did they give you a caterpillar hat when you got out of the truck or anything? Well. And, and I don't know if Bob remembers that, but but back when, like St. Louis, back in the in the late '70s, when we were doing fuel economy tests, um, you know, you were always looking for the truck that did best. But the guy that passed out the most hats, he really won the fuel economy test, right? Right. <laughs> I remember some of the guys from Cummins, Tom Brown. Man, he he'd be handing out dozens of hats. You know, like oh man, we didn't bring enough hats to pass out. You know, <laughs> I was bribing the drivers. <laughs> No, no, this was just, it no, was just. Brad, you're trying to get pictures in magazines with your hat in it. Ah. Yeah, the guys like you were hanging around, the press was hanging around. Yep. And, and of course, at a TMC meeting, right, we may have had a bus that took you down to the test site just so you could see what was going on, you know. You know, the, the tank filling and, and the timing and the data sheets and stuff like that. So, yeah, Bob's right. If you if you could pass out enough CAT or, or Detroit or Cummins hats and then take pictures of the people in the crowd. That's how you won. <laughs> <laughs> okay, works for me. I always thought those those events were pretty sanitized and set up anyway, but uh, always some good conversations to be had out behind the truck where the uh, the communications people uh, weren't monitoring everything that was said. St. Louis, we had, we had 18 good data points out of 26 tests. Some of them went backwards. Some of them, like Bob said, did, didn't make sense at all. So we had to throw them out. But um. sometimes you fooled yourselves. We ran a we ran a validation down in south of Memphis on Interstate 55, and we were trying to disprove that you could control that you could use as a control truck a straight truck for a tractor trailer, and we ended up proving you could, and that was not supposed to be the answer. And we struggled over that for, I guess, what, Chuck, for a year? Rosie went nuts. But anyway, the, the basic answer to that is if you if you plant triple rows of pine trees down both sides of the interstate so that the wind can't get to the road, you can do a lot of things you really can't do other places. So our ability, our and the, the mistake of selecting that state of stretch of Interstate 55 that has pine trees still to this day has these huge pine trees lining both sides of the highway that become natural windbreaks was, mm-hmm. was not the right. We, we didn't do the right thing, <laughs> but they, the numbers we got were right. It's just that we got, as with all of these tests, you get answers for the conditions you run, yep. not for the conditions you might think you had. You know, that always worried me, and I wrote a series of stories a couple of years ago, probably 10 years ago now, about aerodynamic testing and the results that the aerodynamic people uh, put on the table for the consumers. And we got into all kinds of variables and how you can game a test like that, but uh, I guess the consumer wouldn't probably know where the product was tested, and if they're doing it on a highway like that, it takes crosswinds right out of the question, so you'd have to be suspect of the results that were uh, gathered from a location like that. That's interesting. If you knew it, but no, I don't think, I think when we were running all that data, I don't think there was anybody even realized that that was a problem until yeah. months later. 
<clears throat> you guys so, figured it out. Yeah, and I, you know, I remember running some some UPS stuff again right off the Ohio Turnpike. They had kind of their own exit there. <laughs> but anyways, we were running triples, and, and we had one day, um, man, the winds were just, you know, kind of coming out of the north like crazy, not east-west. And and what we were testing were these uh, dollies that would close up together once you got up to a certain speed. Okay. I remember and, them. And, and we were expecting to see, you know, maybe a 2 or 3% improvement. And that one run we made, we saw 8%. And I totally believe it because we never got off cruise. We had, again, perfect drivers, you know, do, this, do the swap at the other end and all that stuff. And well, actually, we, weren't, we were doing a type 2 because we, we were running with and without the, the dollies that were working. Um, but just we saw like 8% improvement. But, I, you know, during that time period where we had those horrendous winds, crosswinds, I, I can totally believe that that was part of the deal. I mean, that, that that's how they work. They were fantastic, you know. Hmm. St. Louis, uh, that's come up a couple of times. Uh, big event down there. But though I understand it, Chuck, uh, you had an interesting experience down there. Yeah, we like I said, we had we had 26 tests going on. And, and we had two tankers that we had in a safe area cordoned off. And we had, uh, of course, we had some officers that we were you know, pr- protection in, in the fenced in area there. But um, one, the, the one Friday night before we started, you know, we were getting, getting stuff together. We were out there walking around the yard and all of a sudden we're getting shot at, you know, by some Yahoo shot at. apartment buildings. Uh, so I, I don't know if they had just gotten paid and it was Friday night and a happy hour or whatever, but <laughs> it was pretty crazy. You know, we, we got out of there pretty quick, you know, let the, let the, uh, the officers take care of the situation, you know, but. That was not not good. <laughs> That's a little out of the ordinary in the uh, job description. Yeah, geez. They used to have an event. They still do, I think, up in Quebec. Uh, it's called Rodeo du Camion. And if anybody's never been there, uh, it's it's uh, trucking on steroids. They have this competition where uh, trucks pull loaded B-train trailers with lumber. It's 140,000 gross up a hill, maybe not quite a quarter mile. And it's like the ultimate test of a drive shaft. Uh, and these guys power up that hill at just enormous amounts of torque. They dial everything right up. The black smoke is so thick, you can't even see the lake anymore. Uh, Chuck, you were a regular attendee, I think, up at uh, Rodeo. I saw you there a couple of times. Uh, you working with some of the truck crews who were running Detroit Power. What did you learn from from those experiences up there other than just having a good time? You know, some some of that stuff was logic. If you could if you could practice before um the run, um you know, if depending on the gearing and the tire sizes, you know, cuz you didn't want to top the hill out right before you needed to do a shift. You know, you wanted that engine pulling as far out as it could go and and try to miss miss that one shift. And you know, that was just one of the things that was going on. And, you know, these guys, they they were playing with air pressure on the transmissions to make sure if they did have to go from the low side to the high side, that they would definitely shift. And, of course, playing with tire pressure, um, looking at different um, compounds, tire, tire compounds, um, you know, made a difference, especially because they were running the bobtail stuff and they were running the loaded stuff. And believe it or not, Michigan now has, I think it's the first U.S., truck challenge uh, ever and they've run it for uh th- th- this was the third year they ran it and i can't believe they ran it with the border closed but but a lot of your uh, canadian brothers up there somehow managed to sneak through the border um to come down here and play and 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 pull the you know the hundred and twenty thousand pound trains up the grade so it's um it, it's great fun i i can always remember one guy he had a he had a big old v8 mac and uh, he, of course, he had his bulldog out on the hood, and it was one of those really super hot days. And he's he's out there at the starting line, and he says, "Wait, wait, wait a minute!" He gets out of his truck, he had a glass of water, and he fed the bulldog on the hood <laughs> a glass of water because it was so hot. I mean, I mean, you you know, you've met some of the guys up there. Donnie Vachon, you know, ended up being good friends with him. Just you know, they they call him the Mad Dog, and 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 I know a couple of occasions, you know, he's pulled like youngsters out of the crowd and given them a giving them a mad dog hat and stuff like that. And just really just gracious, good old boys up there that, that kind of, kind of enjoy a, a week off a week of craziness, you know, among the, the, 
the tough, tough conditions up in Quebec and, and Ontario, especially when you're up there logging, you know, all winter long. So, Well, there was a rivalry that went on for several years between uh, Donnie Vachon, a Detroit guy, and Terry Nychuk, who was a Caterpillar guy. And it was kind of a interesting story. Uh, Vachon was a fleet owner. He had a bunch of trucks, pretty successful, was making some money. And Nychuk was an owner-operator uh, who had, if you've ever been to his house, he had a collection of wrecks behind the house and literally cobbled parts together from all these trucks and uh, and had this 3406 cat that was hopped up. He, he ran propane through it. He did all kinds of crazy stuff. Uh, Bob, did you ever work with Terry up at any of those events in uh, Notre Dame? De no, I didn't. But that, that is the place that I learned how much power you could get with a little bottle of propane. <laughs> I'm surprised more of those trucks didn't blow up on the starting line. Uh, well, well, they lost enough drive shafts and stuff, so that was... Yeah. Well, yeah. And we've seen pictures in the magazines. Rolf Lockwood, a good friend of mine, co-worker, has got these pictures where some of the uh, the right front wheels are a foot off the ground at the starting line. Or Just, more. Or, or, or more. more, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, the, the, the frame's twisting like that. It's unbelievable they come back down and they can still steer them straight. <laughs> love- yeah, just, just amazing. And, and talk about... Talk about emissions and black smoke. You know, if you were if you were sitting at the starting line, you probably didn't know who won by the time the trucks got to the top of the hill because they were they were so overfueled that it was like you could almost walk on the on the soot coming out. Yep. Well, that was part of the game. It pleased the crowd. They loved that stuff. Any more experiences from up there? I mean, you know, you were in the pits working with those guys. What kinds of uh, games were they playing with their trucks? Well, they were always playing with injectors. You know, injector size, trying to make their own stuff and. Um, I mean, I've, I've got a, an acquaintance that I know today that, uh, I, I think he's got probably got the fastest dump truck in the United States, but, uh, this guy actually like, he, you know, he'll take some stock pistons and, and make his own, you know, tops on them. He's, he's, he's actually got some, uh, cam shaft technology. He's been making his own cams and just, you know, rods to, you know, change stroke a little bit with, with his, you know, the way he, you know, works things out and just, he's working with some of the turbocharger people independently and, you know, giving them all kinds of data temperatures and, and pressures. And so he can, you know, substitute the compound turbos for the, the original single turbo that was on the vehicle. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, there's some very, very smart, intelligent people out there that, that have enough money that they can play these kind of games, I guess, you know, but it is fun to watch them. I love it. Yeah. I love it. You know? Well, it's going to be, uh, I don't know, Different, unfortunate, maybe sad when uh, elect- electric trucks and hydrogen fuel cell powered trucks uh, come into their own because, you know, diesel's not going to go away for a long, long time. But, uh, you know, so many more people will be playing with electric motors than, than diesels and uh, all of that fun stuff's going to kind of go away. What do you think of the emerging electric future for trucking? How long is your extension cord? <laughs> yeah, it gets you around the yard. That's about it. One of, one of the projects that I was looking at um, working on, it, it, it was basically a, it, it was a, an EV, a, you know, a battery powered vehicle, but it did have um, backup stuff on it. So it was, it was kind of a hybrid, but it kind of wasn't, you know. Um, and I, I don't know, Bob, I, I, it's got to be way, way, way out there. The, the, the basic problem that you got to overcome is, uh, the amount, the, the energy you can put in 200 gallon fuel tanks is, uh, is sort of wild eyed to think you can, you're going to be able to actually get that in a set of batteries. Well, that's certainly one of the biggest problems they have to overcome is the range and, you know, and the weight, obviously. You think they're going to yeah. be doing fuel economy testing of a sort when they get to some of this stuff figured out or is there, you know, electric just pretty much straight battery to motor and there you go uh, it tends to get lost in the shuffle because nobody ever wants to look at the total energy balance and if you don't look at the total energy balance you don't know what's going on and if you uh, if you generate that electricity in in a coal-fired plant in western pennsylvania the answer is completely different than if you generate it from a nuclear fired plant i mean you know so you don't get the if you don't have the total if you don't have the total equation, you don't know what the answer is. And that's one of the problems, biggest problems I have with the electric guys 
is a lot of them just absolutely want to avoid the real answer. Mm-hmm. And then don't 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 unplug me because you've got wildfires raging somewhere where I can't you know <laughs> I can't fuel my truck tonight. <laughs> yeah, tell your customers you can't deliver the freight because they had to turn off your power. That's not. And I've, well. I've actually I've actually worked with a couple of customers to put in relatively small systems that were aimed at yard tractors. And I'm going to tell you, the money you get tied up in those charging systems is sort of out of the world crazy. I mean, the $465,000 to run five yard tractors in a yard by the time you got everything, the bill from the power company for the new equipment, the it is just, it's, it's hard to believe that I could say if you take if you do the total energy amounts and the total costs, you get a slight you get a different answer. And the industry, the electric industry, tends to want to seems to want to avoid those total answer answers. And until they embrace those, I don't know how they're ever really going to win. Because I, I actually don't see somebody hauling, I don't see somebody hauling lettuce from California to Oklahoma City with an electric truck anytime soon yeah i heard speaking of costs um from a very reliable source who was talking to somebody this is third party stuff so you know it's unverified but i was told that a a fleet in texas 150 trucks uh was looking at electrifying the fleet and the bill from the utility company to put all that power in and all the infrastructure and everything was going to be 30 million dollars now I can't verify that, so I don't know if that's true or not. But that, based on the number you just put out there, four hundred and sixty-five thousand for a handful of trucks, it's uh, that's a pretty steep cost. It is, but you got so much funny money in that. When you took that yeah. all apart, when you took that all apart, you had an engineering company that was making more money to put the system in than the people would ever save with the trucks. It looked to me like it was about a forty-year payback. Yes. And 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 was that engineering company doing that electrical work really worth that kind of money? I don't know. I doubt. I don't know. It, but I don't know. Yeah, fleets and like paybacks in two to three years, not forty years. Yeah, that's right. Of course, five yard tractors don't, don't burn enough fuel to give you much of an opportunity cost either. <laughs> well, and, and nor are they going to make a difference to global warming at the end of the day. I don't think. Not five Probably anyway. not. Probably not. I don't want to wind this up, but, uh, you know, we've gone on for quite a while here. I've really, really enjoyed this conversation, you guys. Thanks for thanks for making that time with us. And thanks, too, for all the hard work you did, you did back in the day of uh, trying to sort out this fuel economy stuff. I think uh, the trucking industry, you know, as a whole is better for all the work you two did and all your your partners in crime back in those days, the Rosenthal's and the autos and stalls of the day. Uh Great job, and and uh, we've got a heck of a, a legacy there behind you now to uh, to stand on. So thanks for all that. Well, thumbs up to TMC also. I mean, they, yeah. they kind of brought brought us all together and um, made us all brothers, you know, one way or the other. And uh, it, yep. it did. It worked out fantastic. Well, you know, yeah. just just to go down one more little rabbit hole here, it was TMC. I think uh, for me anyway, uh, as an outsider in the early days before I really figured out what TMC was all about. Um, I, I was amazed to see the level of sort of cooperation from competitors, uh, whether it's engines, you know, OEMs, fan makers, compressor people, didn't matter, uh, rear axles, uh, getting together to solve a problem. And the, you know, the, the amount of, you know, cooperation within this industry is amazing. You guys compete head to head, day to day, you know, from a corporate point of view. And there you are in, in the rooms trying to sort out problems to make it better for the customer. You know, that, that. Of course, if you go back to the RCCC days um, <laughs> and, and you knew what was going on uh, when they when they would pull like an engine guy in and say, OK, you know, there's 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 like 12 fleet guys sitting around the table and let, let us tell you what your product's doing. So I think, you know, there was always a little push and shove <laughs> yep. from that direction. But but you're right. It all ended up uh, good and, and better than uh, better than before. And TMC always did have sort of an ace. I don't know how they pulled it, but 
they were able to somehow get us to cooperate on issues of significance, things things like cooling system treatment. I, I swear, if you'd have left cooling system treatment to the Society of Automotive Engineers, they'd have probably filled the radiator with sand and beat on it with a hammer. But it, <laughs> the but the, somehow TMC was always able to get, though the solutions may not have been perfect, to get to an endpoint that a customer at least had a fighting chance of making sense out of, which I, I've always thought was one of TMC's greatest uh, greatest benefits. Sometimes I worry they lose that as they become get further and further away from people and vehicles and things like that. Well, and and and, and you know, Bob, we almost got run over there by uh, by some people too at one time trying to take over the test uh, procedures and everything and, and tell us tell us how to do it. But we we work in the real world; we're not in a laboratory, so you know, think about it. And the, and the the, th- the thing I the message I had for those guys is the message I still have for those guys. If you can't get the same answer twice, it ain't worth talking about. Gentlemen, thanks again. Appreciate your time. Glad you could join us on the podcast. Chuck Blake, formerly of Detroit Diesel. Thank you, sir. And Bob Wessels, formerly of Caterpillar. Thank you for your time this morning. Thanks, Jim. Thanks, Jim. HGT Talks Trucking is sponsored by Heavy Duty Trucking Exchange. HDTX 2021 takes place in Scottsdale, Arizona. Go to heavydutytruckingexchange.com to view the agenda, to check for dates, and to apply to be our guest at HDTX 2021. If you like this episode of HDT Talks Trucking, please spread the word on social media and give us a rating and a review if you're listening to us on Apple Podcasts. HDT Talks Trucking is produced by Deb Lockridge, recording and audio production by Jim Park. Heavy Duty Trucking Magazine is published by Bobbitt Business Media. I'm Jim Park. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.